And today we're going to be having a great guest joining our podcast, Tom Coughlin, who many of you may have bumped into him in many different ways in the industry. He's been a writer in Forbes. He owns his own company and is the president of Coughlin Associates, which does a lot of analyst and market research and sizing. He works with IEEE and SNEA um, related to standards and really tracking which technologies are coming out. So a whole breadth of experience that Tom brings to the table. Tom, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Molly. Yeah. uh, Also, I've been involved with the Storage Networking Industry Association, uh, and I've worked in the storage uh, industry for over 40 years as an engineer, engineering manager. Uh, an executive, and it's a real pleasure to join you here. And just to let folks know, also, you said I'm an IEEE volunteer. I've done stuff. I'm currently running for IEEE president-elect. You know, I've already put in, will be planning to put in my vote, but definitely <laughs> if you enjoy what you see on this show, Tom's a great candidate for um, the president of that standards association. So really exciting to see all the different activities you're involved in in our industry. So Tom, I think that, you know, as we jump into Data Unchained, this podcast, as you know, is about thinking about what the possibilities could be for improving humanity, quality of life, speed of innovation, if data was a much more globally accessible resource. Um, Tell me a little bit, kind of in your mind, with all the research you're doing, what do you see happening with data in the world, its growth, um, where it's coming from? Just share a little bit about how how you see the world right now related to data. Uh, Basically, I see it as enormous potential, huge growth ahead. It's being driven by the digitization of almost everything. You know, all the things we carry with us, uh, digital devices, uh, sensors that will be in, in probably in every environment we're at, the cameras on, on cars, all these things, they're going to generate enormous amounts of data. And that data needs to be uh, processed and analyzed. Um, and some of it's going to get stored long-term, some of it's just for, you know, near-term, real-time uh, type, act, type activities. Uh, and so managing this data, including finding it, protecting it, um, you know, security around personal information, all these are going to be really important aspects because more and more of who we are and what we do is going to be a digitized. It's going to be um, something that you can work with and learn new things from. And that's the other side of that, of course, is storage, the networking to move stuff around. And then also really interesting advances in processing, some of which, in fact, are being driven by changes in the way that we store uh, information into memory and into storage devices. So there's, it seems like kind of a lot to unpack there. It seems like as an individual resisting the concept that your entire life is going to be digitized yeah. and available on some device is kind of a fruitless battle. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, you know, I think we, have, we can have some control of that. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, information that about you will basically belong to you and not belong to somebody else. I think that's kind of a fundamental thing that I hope is going to be the outcome of this. But we need to create new norms, new standards, and ways in which, uh, uh, you know, we deal with information about each other and things we're willing to share and things we don't want to share. Um, You know, and uh, it's a whole new world in a way. Uh, You know, we have, you know, following ethics and standards we've had with the way things have been done, but we're going to need to modify and develop those things to deal with this new world. And the fact that there is almost everything you touch may be, essentially recording information, you know, and everything you interact with will be recording information or 
or using information that uh, that has been created about you and about other things about the world at large. So we're on kind of a continuum, I feel like. The idea of more data being created, as long as I've been in the industry, we've talked about that, and it continues to be a story. Let, let's talk a little bit about malware and security. So as, as we think about what kind of technologies are being put into place today or best practices, let's just talk a little bit about the security bit, and then maybe we can talk about the technology that's creating the data. Sure. So, uh, you know, malware is a real threat uh, to uh, a lot of people. There's a uh, a number of things people could do as institutions or as individuals to help protect them. Um, having immutable copies of content, you know, uh, can minimize the impacts of malware. Uh, artificial intelligence, say in a network, this is more like for the organization side, they can look for anomalies and react to them in real time uh, to avoid uh, uh, the spread of malware will be important aspects. And building uh, uh, creating encrypted information, you know, flows that you control uh, and, uh, you know, working off of uh, uh, roots of trust or realizing that most networks and things are essentially untrustworthy and be able to work with systems uh, that will give you security despite that. I think those will be important elements. Um, Another thing will be, of course, uh, managing the number of copies you have of content so that, uh, you know, it's not the odds of it getting into some place where someone who shouldn't have access can get access will be important. Those are a number of different things. And those, some of these things help in terms of just general efficiency and effectiveness of, uh, of storing information. And other things are in there just good practice, but other things also, I think, are, uh, you know, we need to deal with uh, the emerging threats. And, and of course, a lot of this is going to be real-time developments. It's always been kind of a cold war between those who want to take information, those who want to protect information. And I see that continuing. And do you see this kind of decentralized world that's coming up, whether it's that data is being created at the edge or in more devices or being used in data centers and clouds? Is this problem getting more difficult? Are technology advancing fast enough to address these needs around security of this data? Well, I think there's enormous opportunities for improvement in these areas. Uh, and I think that will that's uh, you know leading to new solutions being developed, but uh, uh, future solutions as things evolve, because this is an evolving an evolving area. There will be content in many different places, but content shouldn't go where it doesn't need to go. In other words, um, and, and part of that's just reducing traffic. You know, you wouldn't want everything generated by a sensor at the edge of a network to go into the data center. You want to process stuff where it needs to be processed. You don't, you don't want to pass on more than what you need to. You don't need to necessarily pass on information about who, who is using something to pass on information about what was being done with them. And at least that helps somewhat um, in preventing identification and using your data, you know, uh, taking advantage of your data to do something bad to you. I used to work with a couple of companies who had massive particle accelerators, Argon National Labs, CERN, companies like that. And I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but those those particle accelerators can throw off a petabyte a minute or, you know, just massive amounts of data. And then they needed to quickly determine what is kept and what is lost and then what is processed. But it seems like that problem is no longer limited to the few that own particle accelerators, but needs to be done at the edge with lots of different types of devices. So, so maybe let's talk a little bit about what's happening at the edge. You know, how, how are those determinations made? How is technology evolving from the hardware compute processing that's available? Well, a big aspect of this is the development of artificial intelligence methods of various sorts. They're trained in a data center and they're fairly computationally intensive. And there may be things that develop that will 
will help reduce that computational intensity and the energy consumption resulting from that. But there also is uh, the use of trained models or even some type of uh, AI system that can learn on the fly um, that can help you to understand, find information, but also perhaps help you in processing appropriate information uh, locally, uh, making the sense out of it, deciding what to keep and not to keep. It'll be very hard for us to do this manually just because there's so much of this data. We've got to have tools you know, that are going to help us in order to understand all this traffic and uh, the stuff that what stuff should go where and what stuff shouldn't. So I think those are going to be very important parts of, of uh, providing both a secure um, environment, you know, the best we can, as well as a uh, 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 enriching content and making it available to do all the things that we're going to want uh, data to help us do. You have the luxury of getting to speak to a lot of different people, both vendors, customers, you know, thought leaders, you're a writer, you know, you, you, you have an interesting set of experience. If I, if you were making a recommendation to somebody who's trying to grapple with what to do at the edge right now, you know, some of these best practices, where would you point them out of curiosity? Where would you read or would you look into SNEA or where, where do you feel like the most work is being done on what to do at the edge, how to process, how to keep track of new technologies out there to solve this problem? Uh, there's a few different things. Um, I think there's uh, there's trade groups out there, you know, and, and standards development groups. Uh, 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 the Trusted Computing, for instance, I know they have activities mm-hmm. going on with regard to, uh, uh, you know, creating roots of trust and encryption and things of that sort. Um, there is uh, SNEA, uh, uh, certainly in storage in general, they are, play a very important part. And there's activities going on there that, that have a relationship uh, to storage at the edge as well as the data centers there. Um, there's a lot of academic work going on and, uh, in some of these areas, uh, and there, uh, it, so I think there's a number of sources, you know, to get engaged in that or to find out about some of these, uh, standards, uh, IEEE, you know, uh, I know they have, uh, they're developing, um, related stuff such as blockchain, uh, standards and things of that sort. Uh, so there's a number of ways in which we can use to safeguard data or, uh, make sure that somebody gets the data that belongs to them and those who don't have, who shouldn't have access to data, they don't get access to data. Those are great tips. And, you know, as you kind of think about the best practices, not just about the creation and management, there's also energy consumption that you have to take into account. So, you know, I I think when you and I were talking ahead of time, that you're, you're, it's high on your radar that even just the amount of available energy constrains some of this innovation. Um, what can be done to reduce energy consumption? Why is this kind of a top of mind concern for you? Sure. Well, there's, of course, there's things to be done uh, with regard to the source of energy. And there's uh, a lot of uh, data centers that are using uh, some amount of, of solar or wind energy. There's even some concepts that I've run into where they call it, where they uh, called pausable data centers, for instance, uh, uh, there's an outfit that was offering in Texas a couple of years ago that was offering to build, to put essentially modules that are data centers uh, located right next to a wind farm. Mm. They can take advantage of that inexpensive power at the wind farm, you know, to do processing. And then they would, if the, if the wind died down, then they would gradually go to sleep and then come back up. So depending on the kind of problem, something like that may be a way of doing it. But also uh, there's uh, computer architectures, I think, that actually can change our consumption of energy in particular, moving away from the traditional von Neumann-type architecture, which basically involves moving a lot of data around between a, uh, a processing unit and a storage and memory, um, to move to doing less of that movement of data, which consumes energy and also uh, takes time. 
that you can get faster response and use less energy if we could process data closer to where it lives. And so that's leading to interesting concepts. And again, SNE has been working on this as well as other organizations such as computational storage. And also uh, uh, on the memory side, uh, methods for doing compute in, in or near memory. So compute in or, near, in or near storage, compute in or near memory. Those are going to be important concepts uh, in, the, in the future development. It's also going to be for data centers in particular, it's going to be uh, a major factor uh, developing uh, NVMe or fabric type devices and CXL for the memory side, but to be able to create pools of storage and memory, which is an important part of disaggregating data centers, so that you can create virtual machines uh, that more effectively use uh, the resources in these pools to get things done, uh, which uh, helps to manage cost, but also uh, uh, to make sure that uh, we're using the energy in these data centers more efficiently. If we don't do things like these, you know, we're going to run into a cap on how big data centers can grow just because of the energy consumption. It becomes, you know, too much. Uh, uh, if we don't uh, control it, it could well become too much of a uh, factor uh, in our uh, total energy use and then limit the growth of data centers. There's other things that are being done that could maybe uh, move away some of the energy-intensive AI processing we're doing today to things such as neuromorphic memory technologies, which may uh, mm-hmm. do some of those type of processes in much faster uh, and you, can, you consume less energy than, say, some of our uh, AI machine learning technologies today. There's a lot of things out there, and um, I think we have the technologies that if we put our energy into uh, developing them, that we can reduce the energy that uh, our data centers will consume. That's pretty interesting. So there's the concept of getting near more available energy and then just using less energy in general through the yep. use of technology. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I think we all can't live in this world and not pick up a newspaper and realize that this is something important for us to keep our eye on. Um, I love the concept too, of when you're thinking about how do you process where the data is being created and this idea that I think has been around a little while of data gravity. Um, you know, there's the data gravity is kind of shifting around. It, it used to all be in the data center because that's where the computers were. And now it's shifted to where the device is creating data, maybe sitting at the edge and far from the data center. So different technologies are needed in order to manage this. Yeah, the basic concept is, is that where the data lives, that's going to attract everything else, all the processing and network. And uh, it was seen before as being a reason why, and it is part of what drives the growth of, say, the cloud, the hyperscale data centers is they have all the scale and uh, the data lives there. And so processes and other services and stuff just move to the data center. But you're right. Nowadays, we don't want to bring all the data to the data center. It's just too much. It would totally destroy the networks because networks have not grown <clears throat> as fast as everything else. Um, so we need to, uh, so the data gravity in a sense is also the data where it lives uh, being processed uh, and analyzed and used more effectively so that we can re- keep the, the, you know, the network backbone, you know, keep that from being um, overwhelmed and still provide uh, more valuable and actually faster analysis and services than we might if we had to move everything to a data center to do it. So that's what's driving things at the edge, you know, building things in 5G networks and that sort of thing. Um, But also inside of endpoint devices where they may have, uh, there's a lot of technology now where they can take trained AI models and they can run them on things like your watch, you know, or other devices in your home um, that just process data there. And that, of course, processing and making decisions there reduces in the amount of data you send outside, but also can be a way which you can, uh, uh, if done properly, protect data about yourself and uh, 
and your environment and uh, and other things as well. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there, both to be more efficient, be more effective, and also help help to uh, preserve people's privacy and uh, their personal information. So it's kind of interesting to see those trends come together, that if we move less data, if that's our goal, and when you and I were chatting at NAB a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that as a goal. Yep, it, yep. it helps in a lot of different ways. It helps reduce the effort of data management. It reduces copy proliferation. It makes it easier to know what you have, protect what you have. That if we can be smarter about how we work with data and move less of it, it solves a lot of these problems we're talking about, actually. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, you know, uh, if you don't have to make copies, that saves energy. Um, and it, and if you can process the data where it lives, that's faster as well. So I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of positives. Think, positives are coming out of these trends. I think. Interesting. Um, we didn't talk about this before, but yeah, I think that one of the great solutions to this is smart metadata. And you and I over the years certainly have talked a lot about metadata, but that seems to be on the forefront of what everyone is thinking about. Let the machines, the applications, the humans interact with the metadata. Where do you see the importance of metadata-driven workflows and metadata and AI today? So metadata, first of all, is information that provides useful facts about the, the data. You know, so, um, and it can be an enormous amount of things. I think one important element uh, in developing this is creating standards so that, you know, it, it, the, the types of metadata are interoperable. And I know mm-hmm. there's various industries that have done that. I think that's really important. Um, another thing is, uh, as you pointed out, people are using uh, AI tools. For instance, if I have speech, it could turn speech to text. Text then is easily searched. I could find things out. The other thing you do with, with speech, of course, too, is, uh, uh, you know, which could be an issue on privacy, but may be useful in some cases, is um, if I can actually identify the speaker based upon their speech patterns. Mm, um, yeah. For instance, I've got a, a movie and I'm, you know, uh, working on a, a movie project, you know, because I, I work in the storage and media and entertainment. If I could identify actors, you know, where they, you know, every time they show up and make that part of the metadata, that could be very useful in terms of um, editing work and, uh, and doing things uh, down the road. So turning speech to text, recognizing who's speaking. These are important. Um, another level of that, of course, is uh, visual uh, recognition of various sorts that can be used for a number of different things. Um, and all these things are enabled by building machine learning tools that can be put into things in the local environment that can deal with the data as it's generated more effectively. And as a consequence, that's new types of metadata and information about it. The interesting thing about this is I believe that we will get even more intense into the kind of metadata and association connections that we can make that perhaps we haven't even thought of today. And the consequences of that could be really, really interesting in terms of how we interact with data in the future, how it impacts our lives, um, and how it can be used as a means for us to work with each other. Yeah, I think that that's such a great um, topic. I'm glad we bumped into it in this conversation that, you know, as you think about storage and hardware and devices, in the end, having the smart metadata about what you have is kind of the beginning so that you can do the, make the right decisions with everything else downstream. It seems like you almost can't have a conversation with a company who's thinking about their, their workflows without thinking about their metadata first. Um, it's really important. And, yeah. And so some people, for instance, already had faster access to metadata. They'll put it on faster storage. For That's sure. A common yeah. thing, actually, in storage mm-hmm. is to do that. Like, you know, if I'm, I've got most of my data on hard drives, I've got some flash memory or Octane or something like that, and I keep the metadata on that. And then the metadata then can help you get to the, the actual content much faster. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. At Hammerspace, the company which I work for, we we focus a lot on making the metadata accessible to everyone. And then IT can have a little bit more control over who can actually get to the data, but at least making the metadata much more available seems to help solve a lot of these issues. Yeah, metadata Um, is a key to using data today. It gives it context. And then as we're wrapping up, you, you had brought up the concept of there's some theories out with in the kind of the physical world about data gravity. I, I think this is such an amazing concept and to think that these kinds of things might just be being realized now in 2022. Can you share a little bit more about that? So there's some interesting things that have been going on. Uh, first of all, you know, information theory uh, is related to physical phenomena. There's a uh, Shannon did a, and other people have done a lot of work relating it to thermodynamic principles like entropy. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's been, um, some some folks who have also thought of perhaps information actually has a more physical presence than that. And there's some theories out there right now that information may be a phase of matter, for example, that it actually is, uh, it's it like liquid, solid, gases, plasmas. It's another way, uh, way of describing um, fundamental structures that can exist in matter. And there's a, there's a, a physicist out there who has been bouncing some ideas around that you might be able to detect uh, particles emit or, or a radiation emitted by uh, data when information, for instance, if it's erased, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. very small amounts, but certain types of, uh, of things. If this is true, then this concept uh, that, you know, that data could actually, or information may have a mass, may have energy in, in it, then that would be a very, uh, you know, this whole idea of data gravity sort of takes on a whole new meaning in that sense. Uh, yeah. Now, it's all theory right now. You know, uh, no one's proved this, but it's really an intriguing thought. Um, if it were true, it would be really interesting to see what that what that really means in the big context of things. Whole new frontier of innovation that would open up if that were the case. <laughs> oh yes, it'd be fascinating. If you know, in other words, information. If an information is a physical thing, that would be a fast, fascinating concept. So interesting. Hey, Tom, thank you for your time today. As we're wrapping up, I just want to point to a few places that if you want to read more about some of the thoughts Tom has, um, he is our author in Forbes and you can follow him there. He writes some really interesting reports, which you can find on TomCoughlin.com. The one I use the most is the Digital Storage for Media and Entertainment Report, which tracks a lot of trends, technologies, how different companies are in the M&E space really um, thinking about their workflows and the tools available to them. But Tom's really well-written. So if you want to learn more and also are interested in some of the research he does, great place to go check him out on his website. Anything I missed there, Tom, or you would like to add? Sounds good, Molly. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today uh, and uh, to your audience. Uh, Vote Tom for IEEE president. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Molly. Great. Really nice to see you today. And thanks so much for taking the time on the show. Take care, folks. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. <laughs>